0: Well, our passage this morning is John chapter 14, verses 1 through to 14. You can find that um, in the Black Bibles if you grabbed one on the way in on page 1675. Um, Otherwise, it'll be on the screen or in the Bibles you brought from home. So I'll let you uh, just find that. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. "'If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. "'From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him.'" And Philip said, "'Lord, show us the Father, "'and that will be enough for us.'" Jesus answered, "'Don't you know me, Philip, "'even after I have been among you such a long time? "'Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. "'How can you say, show us the Father? "'Don't you believe that I am in the Father "'and that the Father is in me?' so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it.
1: Thank you, Anne. Uh, well, it's lovely to be with you here again this morning uh, as we come to the third of our four weeks in this series on an unexpected Jesus. Uh, two weeks ago, he's a master who serves us. Last week, the God who chooses us. Today, you'll see the title is a Son Who Shows Us the Father. And uh, inside the handout, you'll see a quite an extensive outline. It'd be good for you to have that in front of you as well as a Bible, uh, there are stacks out there, and I love these new Bibles because they have very big print, uh, which is quite good. Um, but yeah, please do have a Bible in front so you can see that what I'm talking about I'm not making up, but it's actually from God's word, not mine. Now you see the heading at the topic at the top of uh, the handout, says, Why Theology Matters. Why Theology Matters. Um, I want to start here because often to an outsider, uh, lots of outsiders say, well, you know, like in the end, don't all religions essentially say the same thing? Why are you so concerned about the specifics of what you believe? Even to Christians, uh, oftentimes we're victims of interdenominational squabbling, so that sometimes people say, well, look, can't we just be Jesus people? Isn't that enough? Uh, Sometimes even in churches, uh, we've been seeing that Jesus' command to love one another is pretty straightforward. It's not that hard to work out what that means, really. Let's just get on with it. So why does theology matter? Why do we need to spend time picking over what seems like the nitty-gritty or the details. Well, I want to show you today why it's important. Uh, The story so far that we've been tracking the last few weeks is it's the Passover festival, uh, the night before now what we know is Good Friday. Uh, Jesus already has washed his disciples' feet. Last we saw that he predicted Judas would betray him, Peter would abandon him, and now Jesus says he's about to leave them. And he's going to his death. To which Jesus tells the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is the one who's about to go to his death. But he says to his disciples, verse 1 here of chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Well, why not? That's what this talk is all about. Uh, what I've done on the handout, if you have a look, you'll notice that I've printed there for you a series of FAQs of Frequently Asked Questions. Now, I was looking at a website the other day. Everyone has FAQs, so I thought, I'm going to do this talk as a series of FAQs. I don't know if it's going to work, but we'll give it a go anyway. It'll be a bit different. It's not an excuse to slip in a 10-point sermon, in case you're wondering. Um, so let me rest, you know, rest easy on that. I'll go very quickly over some of them, but linger on some others. Um, each time, I'll try and explain why it matters because there's a whole series of questions in this passage that are worth investigation. Uh, and if you have a look there, you can see what the FAQs are. Hopefully, some of them at least will grab your attention. Uh, so here we go then. Frequently asked question number one. Who is the father to whom Jesus refers? Who is the father in this passage to whom Jesus refers? And the short answer comes in verse two. Uh, well, it's actually there in verse one. Um, the father is God. The Father is God. Now, why does it matter that Jesus talks about God as Father? Well, because it tells us that God is relational. He is not just some all powerful deity. The Jews to whom Jesus is speaking were theists. They believed in a God who was powerful, but at the same time, somewhat distant, somewhat remote. The technical word in the Bible, sorry, the technical word used to describe God is transcendent. Uh, which loosely means unapproachable. Unapproachable because he is so majestic, not very personal and never particularly intimate. And in that context, Jesus refers to God as Father. I think it matters because it's a whole lot more compelling to be welcomed into a home, to be adopted into a family, than to simply discover the truth about God. And with that in mind, then, you will have noticed that in the passage that Anne read to us, the incredible number of times in which the word Father appeared. If you just run your eyes over it now, in fact, I counted, there are 13 references to Father in just 14 verses. Hard to miss the point, isn't it? Jesus wants us to know that God is Father. Frequently asked question number two, does that mean, therefore, that Jesus is not God? Does that mean, therefore, that Jesus is not God, as some cults claim, like Jehovah's Witnesses or Christadelphians? Well, a couple of ways in which that's not true. Now, the first comes from John 1, verse 18, which is actually printed a little lower down on your handout. Uh, John 1, 18, uh, we're told, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And likewise in John 10, verse 29, also printed on your handout, Jesus says, My Father who has given these disciples to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's really important what Jesus says there in verses 29 and 30. He says both I and the Father are one and my Father is greater than all. Jesus is saying that there is an order but there is not a subservience. Jesus is God but in a sense, the Father is still greater. There are some things which the Father knows that the Son does not know. For example, the day of Jesus' return. Uh, why it matters? Well, it matters because, let me urge you, if Jesus is not God, whatever you do, don't worship him. That's idolatry. Frequently asked question number three. So where is Jesus going? Where is Jesus going? I pick it up in verse three. Verse three. Um, <clears throat> I will go and prepare. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. The short answer is Jesus is going to his father's house or what we would loosely describe today as Heaven. Now, why doesn't Jesus just say, I'm going to heaven? Well, again, because I think it's more compelling. To speak about going to the Father's house is much more welcoming than simply going to a place, even if it's a place that we trust will be magnificent, a place called heaven. So just as Jesus talks about God as being Father, so he talks about heaven as being the Father's house. Where we are going, therefore, is not just to a Father, but into his very home a home which Jesus says has many rooms, and I think the idea is more than enough space for all. Uh, why does it matter where Jesus is going? Well, because Jesus is, you might say, the advance party. If he, unless he goes there to make preparations, unless he goes to announce our arrival, we won't be welcomed. We won't be welcomed into the Father's house. Okay, frequently asked question number four. We're on a roll here. Frequently asked question number four. How do I get to the Father's house? How do I get to the Father's house? Uh, And the answer comes in verse six, in the very famous verse where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, the way in which you get to the Father's house is you don't get a GPS and punch in the coordinates. You need a guide. You need someone to take you there. Jesus is the way, which is a, once again, relational idea. Now, why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus must be the guide? Well, the answer is because uh, even if you could find the Father's house, you can't just rock up and invite yourself in unannounced. Uh, You need someone to escort you there And to open the gate, to let you in. And the reason, of course, therefore, why Jesus is the way is because Jesus has been sent to escort us there, to accompany us there. And the reason he can do that is because he's come from there. So he already knows the path. He's just doing it in reverse. You'd see that back in John chapter one. Uh, John chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who has come from the Father. And so I come to frequently asked question number five Is there any other way to the Father and to the Father's house apart from Jesus? That is, aren't all religions the same in the end? Don't they all lead to God? Aren't there just different pathways? You know, like when you get your GPS and you put it in a location and it shows you the first route and then it gives you alternative routes that you can select? Are there other ways? Well, this one has a short answer. Verse 6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is there any other way to the Father apart from through Jesus? Jesus' own answer is no. Why does it matter? Well, I'm going to pause on this for just a moment and give you the slightly longer answer because I'm not oblivious to just how arrogant it sounds to say that Jesus is the only way and every other way, in fact, leads away from God, not to him. Uh, If you're here as someone today who's not a disciple... Uh, then once again, to Michael's welcome before, it's great to have you with us here. We're delighted that you're giving some of your Sunday morning uh, to be with us here. I want to acknowledge what you're probably thinking, uh, which is that this is a shocking thing to hear. Uh, it's shocking because Jesus sounds so completely intolerant, which, of course, is one of the great vices in our time. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father except through me. Here's a couple of things I'd like to uh, kind of respond with. Uh, The first is to say that despite what you might think, uh, this is what Jesus says Christians haven't made it up. In fact, actually, to be perfectly honest, most of us would kind of wish that he hadn't said that in some ways because we are aware of just how badly it plays. This is Jesus who says it. This is not Christians who've made this up as a way of protecting our own religion or trying to justify what we say. But what I want to add to that is that Jesus, who says it, he backs his words with action. He doesn't just talk a talk, he actually lives out what he believes. And in fact, what we're going to see in just the subsequent chapters is that the way in which Jesus says he brings us to the Father is through his own death. Jesus will lay down his life as a demonstration of his love for us to bring us to the Father. And so I understand that to hear him say he is the only way does sound harsh. But Jesus is not just proclaiming things. He's living it out and living it out in action. Uh, This is why, for 2,000 years, Christians have been committed to taking the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Now, this is the reason why Christians have given everything that others might hear about Jesus, because Christians are convinced that what Jesus says is that unless people hear about Jesus, they can't be saved. They can't come to the Father. And so, if you're here today, particularly at the invitation of a Christian friend, uh, can I say to you, this is the reason why they keep talking to you about Jesus? Uh, they know how bad it sounds at one level for Jesus to say, is the only way in which you can be saved. But the reason why they do it is because they have a deep concern and love for you. And even though they know how it sounds, nevertheless, they want you to be saved. Uh, If you are a disciple of Christ, and so at this point, particularly, I want to address the members of this church. For a moment, I do want to remind us that when Jesus says no one comes to the Father except through him, I want us to feel the weight of knowing that billions who don't believe in Christ cannot be saved. Billions who don't believe in Christ cannot be saved. And in many ways, this is a good diagnostic question of your theology, of what you believe. You see, if you've never been tempted to keep quiet about what Jesus says here, if you've never been tempted to keep quiet about Jesus' incredibly exclusive claim that no one comes to the Father except through him, it's probably because you don't believe that Jesus is the only way. It's probably because you think that there actually are back doors, other ways to the Father. Uh, And yet, it's the Apostle Paul who will make it most clear as to why Jesus alone can save. Paul says that if there were any other way, then Christ's death was in vain. So in Galatians chapter 2, I haven't printed it there, but just let me read it out. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, if you're taking notes, Paul says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He's saying if there's any other way in which you get to the Father, then Jesus didn't need to die in the first place. And so... For us, hard though it is, this is why we are convinced that salvation is found in no other name than Jesus. Okay, back to the FAQs. Number six, why is it so important to see the Father? Why is it so important to see the Father? After Jesus made his claim that no one comes to the Father except through him, in verse um, 8, Philip says, Well, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. At uh, one level, Philip's question sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? You know, given what Jesus has just said, no other way you can be saved except through him. No other way you can get to the Father except through him. Philip's request sounds pretty reasonable. Oh, come on, Jesus, if you want us to believe that, then just give us a bit more to help us trust you. Uh, if you just showed us the Father, we would never doubt you ever again of course, when I put it that way around, you find yourself thinking, hmm, or would they? It's interesting, uh, every time someone in the Bible meets God, generally their response is not always 100% positive. Uh, If no one else, take Moses, Moses sees God, we're told, speaks to him as face to face. And yet Moses doesn't make it into the promised land because of unbelief. So, the point I think that Jesus is making in the end is that you don't need to see the Father if you've seen the Son. Verse 9 Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus' point is that if you've seen him, in effect, you have seen God in all his glory. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because Jesus is assuring us that Jesus is sufficient. You don't need any more revelation of God than in Jesus. Christians often have a fascination with looking for God's will, for looking for the evidence or the work of God in their life. Now, oftentimes it's for good intentions. We want to know that we are serving God in the way in which he wants. I understand that. But you don't need any greater revelation of God when you have the fullest revelation of the Father in the Son himself. And so frequently asked question seven, number seven then, why does seeing the Father equal seeing the Son? Why does seeing the Son equal? Equal seeing the Father. Why, if you have seen the Son, have you seen the Father? Verse ten. Verse ten. Jesus says, "Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me?" The reason Jesus says that if you see the Son, you've seen the Father, is because they are in each other. Uh, the technical word here is they mutually indwell. This is how theologians justify their existence. They come up with fancy words like this. They mutually indwell. They are in each other. So if you've seen Jesus, in effect, you have seen the Father. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because this is why Jesus can show us the Father. Because he is in the Father and the Father is in him. In the end, this is why your theology matters. Only if Jesus is God, only if the Son is in the Father, can he show us the way to the Father's house. I hope you can see by now that when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, he's not being arrogant, he's not being intolerant, if he is true. What makes him true is who he is, not whether we're comfortable with the implications or not. Jesus is in the Father, the Father is in Jesus, therefore, Jesus alone can bring us to him. But put it slightly differently, if Jesus were true and chose to withhold that truth because it was unpalatable to our ears, well, you'd say that he is guilty of a vile cover-up, wouldn't you? If he withheld that which was true, simply because we didn't want to hear it. Okay, frequently asked question number eight. Why should I believe what Jesus says? Why should I believe what Jesus says? Well, there's two reasons. The first is because of verse six, where Jesus says, I am the way, the, the truth. He says he is the truth. That's part of the answer. Uh, but more, more importantly, from verse 11, verse 11, Jesus says, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. At least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Now, when John uses the word works, what he actually means is the word signs. If I tell you that, when you go back and reread John's Gospel at some point, you'll realize how often the word "sign" comes up. Sign word—they're interchangeable. Signs in John's Gospel are always things that Jesus does to point to something greater, to something more important. So he turns water into wine. He feeds five thousand people with a handful of um, fish and a few loaves of bread. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He heals a man born blind. What we might call miracles or signs. Why? That we might know who Jesus is. They point to something greater. Why does it matter what Jesus says here? Well, because Jesus always backs up his words with actions. So one of the things I'd love to urge you to do is to go back and read the whole of John's Gospel and to see all the different signs, the last and greatest of which, of course, is... His resurrection from the dead. To persuade us that he is who he claims to be. He is God's son. He is God. If you've never done that before, if you've never sat down and read John's gospel in one, in one sitting, there's only 21 chapters. It takes you about an hour. Perhaps on the leading to Easter, as we've been making our way through this series, you might find some time to do that. That you might see the signs and in so doing believe what Jesus says. Frequently asked question number nine, only two to go. Can I really do greater things than Jesus? Now, this is where it gets fun. Have a look with me at verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the signs I have been doing And they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So, what does this mean? The signs that Jesus has done, they're pretty spectacular. Are we going to do them and even greater? Well, let me try and help you unpick this one. First thing to say is, I don't think Jesus is saying, promising that we will do even more spectacular miracles than Jesus did. I know many have tried, but my guess is probably in the end you can't top Jesus. Right, let me just leave it at that. My guess is you probably can't do better than Jesus. So that's not what he means, I think. It's possible that Jesus is referring to the magnitude of the signs. Now, this is going to sound somewhat crude, but follow the logic. How many disciples did Jesus gather? Twelve, maybe a few more, right? There were a few more at the end. Uh, since then, there have been Billions of disciples. So maybe the greater thing that is being described here is just magnitude. Maybe. In the end, I think the most likely explanation is that Jesus is talking about quality versus quantity. Quality versus quantity. Jesus is describing the difference between anticipation and realisation the difference between promise and fulfillment. See, so at the point at which Jesus is talking to his disciples, he is about to go to his death and then be raised from the dead. But it's not happened yet. By contrast, you and I, we look back at what our forebears could only dream of the atonement of sin the defeat of Satan, victory over death. Jesus' disciples looked forward to that. We look back. And so, in a sense, anything that Jesus did before his death death and resurrection, though magnificent, is nothing compared to us when we declare what has been accomplished. Jesus talked about what he would do. We testify about what he has done. And to demonstrate how what we do is even better, let me give you a couple of examples. What would you rather do? Would you like to go to a preview of the grand final or see the highlights package afterwards? Neither, yeah. Thank you. All right, different image. Would you like to see the 30-second movie trailer or go to the opening night red carpet uh, extravaganza with all celebrities and then talk about it afterwards. See the difference? Jesus' disciples only look forward to something that they can only dream of. You and I, we get to declare with conviction, because it's happened, the news that the whole world needs to hear. Why does it matter? Well, because I think verse 12 reminds us that in the end, there is no greater thing you can do with your life than to proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father through him. The other things of this world, they are good, very good at times. But this is the greatest thing you can do. And so final question then, number 10, how much can I ask Jesus to do for me? Now, of course, when I put it that way around, you suspect the answer is not going to be what you want it to be, but let's have a look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus concludes, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Okay, it's actually a pretty short answer, this one. You can ask Jesus to do anything which will glorify the Father through you. Anything which glorifies the Father through Jesus. Now, of course, when I put it that way around, you recognize that this is not an invitation to come up with a shopping list of your personal desires. It's pretty crude, isn't it? To imagine that Jesus was betrayed by by Judas abandoned by Peter, forsaken by God on the cross so that you could ask God to help you pass your exams or, because I work with uni students, get a new iPhone or buy a new house. Once again, those are good things, mostly. God is very generous. But he has so much more in store. So many greater things than that. And if glorifying him, glorifying him is our goal, then actually I think the best thing for us to ask for is that our Father's name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, and that his will be done. Because in so doing, we recognize that sometimes he knows better than we do. Okay, let me conclude. Why your theology matters. Why your theology matters. What I've tried to say in this talk is that who Jesus is determines what Jesus can do. Okay? Who Jesus is determines what Jesus can do. John 14 tells us that if the Father and the Son are one, then Jesus can show us the Father and he can show us the way to the Father's house which is why our hearts need not be troubled by any of the uncertainties or trials of this world. So let me finish by asking, what's your theology? What's your theology? If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, then you can take heart in his promises. He said he's gone ahead of us to the Father's house. He's gone there to, in a sense, fast-track our check-in to ensure that the room is ready, the windows are open, there's fresh air, to make sure that the banquet feast will be waiting. And if he's gone to all of that effort... You can rest assured, he's not going to forget you. He's going to come back and make sure he takes you home. I understand that until he does, there are uncertainties and trials. There is danger. There is sadness. There is even death. Jesus himself is about to experience that the very next day. These things are real. And they do bring us grief. But when Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, don't be overcome with anxiety, the reason we can trust him, well, is not because of our circumstances. It's not because of our feelings. It's not because of our best endeavors. The reason we trust him is simply because of who He is, and because of what he does. And in that comes the peace that surpasses all understanding. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus. We thank you that he will bring us back to your home. And so we pray in the meantime, uh, give us courage and conviction, and the ability to fix our eyes firmly on him that we might follow him who is our guide until he brings us home. Amen.